0: Hey, all right, hello. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX World. Super, 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 super excited for this one. Uh, I'm just going to whack a link in LinkedIn so that the group know what's going on. And, uh, and we'll do this. Uh, if you're new here, this is VUX World. This is the show where we talk all about voice AI, conversational AI, and the future of AI-powered customer experience. Uh, Deepgram are the sponsor for this episode. I am delighted to present Deepgram. A speech recognition company, uh, really pushing the boundaries as far as uh, speech recognition is concerned. Immense accuracy, over 90% uh, in some cases, which is a lot better than you will find elsewhere. Uh, exceptionally decent pricing around it as well. And companies all over the world are using Deepgram, not just in voice applications. They're using it for absolutely all kinds of stuff. Businesses are being built on top of its speech recognition models. Uh, it is absolutely amazing. I would definitely recommend you check them out if you are in the market for a speech recognition system. Uh, and what they also do, if you are in the market for a speech recognition system, is they will do some baselining and some comparisons between DeepGram and other vendors that you might be considering. And essentially, you can judge for yourself, see which one see which one uh, performs better. So thank you, DeepGram, for sponsoring VUX World. Uh, if you are interested and you would like to check out more, head to deepgram.com forward slash VUX World. That is deepgram.com forward slash VUX World. Thank you, Deepgram, for sponsoring this episode of VUX World, which is all about designing conversations with things. Two people who I am an immense fan of, so much of a fan that I have two copies of their book, uh, Conversations with Things. I had to check there because the title for this is called Designing Conversations with Things, but the book is called Conversations with Things. It is Rebecca Evanhoe and Diana Diebel. Rebecca and Diana, welcome to VUX World, and thank you for joining us.
1: Hi, it's thanks nice for having us. It's Good a to see you. I think the last time we were all together in person was just before the pandemic at a conference.
0: It was. It was uh, almost two years ago. Can you mm-hmm. believe that? Hard to believe we were talking about how uh, time flies and then at the same time, sometimes it like feels as though it's flown, but then you look back and it feels like it was a long time ago. And it feels as though it was kind of yesterday because it feels as though so much time has gone so quickly because we've all been bounded by four walls for, <laughs> for so long. <laughs> but but actually, when I think <laughs> about January, when we last saw each other, it was that Project Voice and it actually does seem like ages ago now, doesn't it? It feels like a long time ago. Yeah, yeah that
2: was... Just telling Kane before we got started that's the last time that rebecca and i saw each other in person so this it's all everything's happened in
0: four that balls is, <laughs> that is crazy that is absolutely so well well how maybe it's a good thing to get into uh at the outset given that is how on earth did you how, get the idea uh plan find a publisher write and actually publish a book uh Without actually ever seeing each other, I suppose a lot less wine would have been would have been drunk during the process. Perhaps I don't know, but, but, but.
1: Maybe, more. <laughs> maybe more.
0: Maybe more. Um, but how, how do how do you even how do you even like approach something like that? Working on something that's so intense in terms of time scales and effort, and also very detailed, like decide, even debating which words to use in which sentence. Like it takes a lot of time to to do. So how do you even think about doing that when you know when you can't see each other?
1: Yeah, well, it all I mean, it all started, it was sort of Diana's idea to see if we could write a book because we had a lot of alignment on stuff that we were passionate about and stuff we felt like the industry was really not doing very well. Um, and so we approached our two favorite publishers, basically. There were a couple of others, but um, one of them was Rosenfeld Media, who liked our proposal and asked us for many proposal revisions. Um, and then a few months into the pandemic they said, yes, you know, will you write a book for us? And we said, sure. And if we, I think if we had known how difficult it would be, (laughs) uh, (laughs) we might not have made it. But yeah, Um, Diana, I'll pass to you.
0: What what was so difficult, Diana?
1: It was, so I think like the obvious thing, right? Like
2: just the stress of this global pandemic and not knowing what was coming, the sort of, you know, now documented adrenaline stress reaction that all of us were having at any given moment in time, sort of being the norm and trying to work through that in addition to like working our day jobs and then um, sort of globally, but like particularly here in the US working through a lot of um, racial unrest and just some cultural things that we've been needing to reckon with for quite some time and having that added to the pot Um, I'm also Rebecca lives in New York, which is like just tiny, tiny spaces and people on top of each other. So that's like an added stress. I'm in Chicago, have a little bit more space, but I have a child. So I was also parenting at the same time as doing all this stuff. So it was like, those were the main, just like life challenges more so than book Mm. challenges. Mm. But I think we got lucky in a way because we were able to access people for uh research and for asking you know running stuff by them asking them questions because everybody was just sort of like yeah i'll hop on a zoom Mm. what's what's the difference what's another half hour of my life on a virtual call
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's interesting you probably got kind of like uh there's, there's no real escape then then is there I'm wondering if I can just uh, have a quick call just to pick your brains about something. I'm writing this book. Is there any chance you can give us 15 minutes, half an hour? Oh, I don't know. Actually, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I'm available. What? What? What are you doing then? Because I know that you're sitting in the house. <laughs> I know you're not going anywhere.
1: Baking <laughs> <Thank you>, bread. <laughs> <Not, laughs> Too busy not, yeah. with my sourdough starter. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think you know. In in, I think that was virtual collaboration was sort of like quickly becoming normalized. And so we did get to kind of ride that wave and that was incredibly useful. Um, I think when we originally said we would do it, um, we thought maybe we would be able to get together and kind of have like a weekend editing session or something. Obviously that, that didn't happen. Um, But I think that we basically found ways to communicate Based on the time we had and what we were trying to do, like it necessarily had to be kind of efficient, but also, um, but also, like, this is a book and the stakes are pretty high, and we wanted everything to be right and we wanted everything to be accurate and we wanted to represent stuff the way that we wanted it to. So, um, I mean, we were commenting in Google Docs, we were texting, we were having Zoom calls, um kind of in in pockets wherever wherever we could and um you know i was saying to someone recently the book was we're super happy with it the reception's been fantastic but um it didn't get very good until the very end right. um it's just hard to write a book so we just kind of chipped away at it the way you do with any book
0: Interesting. and and it has been received very well I even when did, when did it come out what was the May was it uh, April? Was it April. So I mean, it's been very, 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 very well received. I mean, there's still posts now on on LinkedIn from people who are kind of just getting hold of a copy, and uh, and going and, and picking their way through it. And uh, there's a guy who uh, I want to find him. Where is he? Um, who is literally he's got things marked up to to. Death. bill curland uh his his uh kind of like note taking and bookmarking skills are absolutely unbelievable uh he's literally got every page marked up with notes and it just shows how much is in there and um, we'll get we'll get into i mean, we're not necessarily going to talk specifically about the book as such and what it's interesting what's in the book to be honest because um i mentioned in in the video i made yesterday that It is genuinely kind of one of the most insightful books on conversation design because, again, you mentioned it, Rebecca, at the beginning about how people who are established conversation designers who've been doing this for a long time are using this. I use, and I don't mind admitting it, the personality uh, framework. Is since since reading that is is what I use. That's literally all I obviously credited, uh, but that's but that's what I use now because I think it's absolutely spot on. And so it's kind of got this thing where someone picks it up in the first time, never designed a conversation in their life, can learn a hell of a lot from it. But at the same time, people who've been doing it for quite a while can pick it up, check themselves before they wreck themselves, and also learn a bunch of new stuff at the same time, which I think is very unique.
1: Yeah, I think one of my favorite things is, um, I mean, it's such an honor to get, to get such good feedback. It really is. Diane and I text each other all the time. Like, we can't believe (laughs) how people are saying such nice things about the book. But um, what I love is hearing from people who have been conversation designers for a long time, and they feel like the book is kind of their backup Where they're like, Mm. I've been saying this for a while, and now I can point to this book and say like, hey, this kind of validated um, that like having the book be somebody's like backup, Mm. like we have your back in the workplace. (laughs) I think that makes me really proud. Yeah,
0: for sure. That is fantastic. Uh, well, what I did say yesterday, I don't know if you saw, uh, if you saw this, I said that uh, as soon as the book came out, I went and bought a copy, as you do. I was so keen, even though I did, thankfully and appreciatively, have an advanced copy, but I wanted the actual thing. So I went and bought one. And um, unexpectedly, uh, Rosenfeld got in touch and said that diana and rebecca want to send you one so i thought well okay that would be nice that's very nice of them so i have two um and so what i thought i would do as uh, to make us a little bit more interesting not that it's not interesting already it's it's shaping up so well so far uh, but to add a bit of spice to the episode i thought that what i would do is a little sweepstake and give somebody a chance to win one of my copies So I put a post on LinkedIn yesterday and said, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please do. If you are already subscribed, comment below and say that you are. Uh, And the people who subscribed from the moment of that post to right now will be entered into a sweepstake. I'm going to pick a name out. I've got a system here that's going to pick the name out. So it will be random. Uh, It's not me looking for favorites. Uh, And whichever name comes out, I'll send a copy of this book. So I'm going to do that in a minute. Uh, before I do that, while I line up the uh, the uh, system that's going to do that, we've got some people chipping in. We've got Rodrigo saying hi, uh, Faline. We've got uh, saying, "Oh yeah, comment on the fact that we haven't seen each other since a pandemic ago, <laughs> which is good." Orestes mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, says, "Hello everyone." Uh, Richard has got a question. Richard Wozzecker has got a question. We're going to come to that in a moment. Shout out to Bill Curland, who uh, is appreciative of. The shout out to Bill Curland. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so we're going to do this. We are going to do this. We're going to get into this uh, this uh, randomised draw. I'm not going to share my screen because I think it's a bit unhelpful for me to share absolutely everybody's name who's signed up because I don't know if they want their names to be shared. Uh, but there's 25 people in total. And so the odds are looking pretty good to to win a copy of this. 25 to 1 chance. I don't know if you're betting people. Rebecca, Diana, are you betting people? <laughs> No, not successfully. <laughs> no? Yeah,
1: not in any kind
0: of productive way, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of the point, I think, of gambling, isn't it? Is that the, uh, the house always wins. Um, so let's have a go. Uh, we'll do a little countdown, and I'm going to press this button. And uh, really, I should have some sound effects lined up and stuff like that. But, uh, you know, let's, let's, just, let's just go with the flow. Uh, so in three, two, one oh it's doing it it's going through them all i can see some joe yelland joe yelland air horn sound congratulations (laughs) Congratulations. (laughs) well done joe congratulations on winning a free copy of conversations with things uh i will drop you an email and it will be in the post this week so well done Uh, so you mentioned there, Oh, in fact, let's go to Richard's question first, and then I'll get into uh, some of the things that you identified were missing in other areas, which was one of the reasons for getting in there, because I think that uh, discussing the gaps in our collective uh, understanding of how to design conversations, I think, is a good topic to get into. But first, uh, Richard Wazeka is asking, I love the book, but when you... When you consider the title, did you consider whether we are truly having conversations with things? In old school days, when we wrote each other letters on paper, we didn't say we were having conversations with, I'm going to hide that because I can't read the rest of it, uh, having conversations with paper. That was just the medium. Should we be thinking of these machines in the same way? Uh, so are we truly having conversations with things or not? What was the, what was the reasoning behind the, uh, the title?
1: Um. That's Oh, go ahead, Diana. No, no, no. Go ahead, Rebecca. I think that's uh, Richard. Thank you for this question. I think it's really interesting and it's kind of a good call out. So I think um, part of what we discuss in our books in the personality chapter is like thinking about how much of a, a talking system versus like more of a mind, like how we call it like level of personification. Like is this an ATM that you talk to or is it an assistant that you're supposed to be sort of friends with and have a long-term relationship with? And different devices kind of position themselves differently. So, um, you know, the title I think plays with the idea and kind of calls out that we're we are talking to, even if it is like a per, a person presenting thing, like a Siri or an Alexa, we are talking to a thing and not a person. Um, and I also, we, I think we also chose the title because it sort of gestures towards like the meta conversation that the book is having with the, f- the field. Like it sort of tries to comment on where the field is. And um, we bring in a lot of other devo- other voices from people and perspectives and we quote people and um, involved a lot of people in the production of the book. So um, I think of it as sort of like a, a, a double meaning almost of like, in some cases we are talking with a thing, like a talking refrigerator or an Alexa device, Um, but there's also this kind of larger conversation happening that the book is addressing. Mm.
2: Yeah, it was kind of meant to be like this broad encapsulation of like, there are multiple devices and like to the point that Rebecca just made like, you know, entities that we're conversing with and this conversation design. um, The information that's contained in here is meant to apply no matter what, what is housing the system that you're having the conversation with.
0: Mm. and i suppose if you were to take richard's kind of analogy of if you write a letter to somebody else you're not having you're not writing to paper you're writing to the person on the other end actually most of the time it doesn't matter if you're using a voice assistant on your phone or a voice interface in an app or you're calling a call center if you go past the device which is the thing and you go to what it is that you're actually talking to it's usually nine times out of ten it's a business isn't it which is also a thing or it's a service, which is a thing. Or in the
1: U.S., it's a person, Uh, (laughs) unfortunately. Yeah, 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 I mean, it's like, I really love Richard's question because it is sort of like, well, where's the thing? Like, is the thing the device or is the thing the kind of like AI mind, which is still a thing. It's not a person. Um, Mm. So, yeah, I I like, I do like that there are multiple ways to interpret the title, and I really like Richard's question.
0: Mm. And you mentioned there that sometimes you are having conversations with what you would call a thing like an ATM. Other times you're having conversations with uh, a thing which is a little bit more like an entity in its own right, like Alexa. It's got a name. People often call it she, uh, whether that's a slip of the tongue or whether it's because they believe that, it's, that this thing is female. Who knows? Um but it kind of gets to the question that you alluded to around personality and the level of which th- certain things need personalities or not. And I said how much mm-hmm. of a fan I am about that personality kind of um, the personality section. And I remember a while back, somebody asked me the question about how do you approach designing a personality for an Alexa skill? And my response was, it kind of depends what it's supposed to be doing because if you're supposed to be a, a definitive defined like brand that's got personality like Virgin or something, then maybe you will. But if you're just trying to get a job done, you just want to order an Uber, then maybe piggybacking on Alexa's personality and like masking yourself underneath the Alexa persona might be a way to go. I'm curious about what your thoughts are on the whole topic of personality. Does every single bot need a personality or can you get away with you know, not defining it in some cases. I suspect I kind of probably might know the answer, but I'm interested in your uh, grounding and reasons for personality design.
2: You've kind of touched on some interest, like two interesting things in there, which was like the idea of relational versus transactional uh, bots. So like, what's the job to be done here? How much of a personality is necessary for the person to get the expected result or have a good experience? And then this other like piece that Rebecca and I uh, debate hotly, which is the influence of the marketing brand on the personality. And I think like overall, you have to define, define the personality or the lack of personality so that when you're designing, it's very clear the, the intent and the choices that are being made from a design perspective so that it all lines up together. Otherwise, it's kind of this mishmash. It becomes confusing for the user And we all know that people anthropomorphize everything. So they're going to project something onto this. So it's better to be kind of in control of that. But the extent to which you lay on the personality really kind of comes back to what you were saying, Kane. Like, do I just need to, like, get money out of the ATM? I don't need a personality for that. I need the money out of the ATM. That's it. And if you're trying to, like work through some therapy stuff, well, then a the personality might actually be much more helpful. Um, you know, if it's a coach or something like that, then there's a personality that could potentially be quite useful in that scenario. So it's really thinking about like, what is the use case here? Mm-hmm. Rebecca, would you add anything Yeah,
1: yeah, I think so. I like Jonathan Bloom's tweet that we include in that chapter that's like, people think of personality as like, they kind of conflate it with like charisma and spunk and energy when actually like, if you're doing something transactional, it's going to have a personality. People will like perceive a personality. It's just going to be boring, straightforward, Mm. professional, you know? So um, I think one of our big undercurrents in that chapter is like, y'all need to cool it and not everything (laughs) needs to be, you know, have the energy of a circus clown. Like we, we can dial it back a little bit, especially if it is transactional. So that was one of our big, our big uh, things we wished to impress on our readers.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. That does make sense. I think that, that, um, there, there is a kind of, I think probably a while back, this sort of like, um, assumption, I suppose that everyone wants to wants to have small talk um. whereas I think actually what's actually, what's really transpired is that that's not I think it's kind of wore off now isn't it really you know I, I may, maybe the odd are you really a bot or are you a human thing potentially but I think that would you say that custo- end users of chat applications voice systems, would you say that they've matured in terms of their understanding of it and there's less kind of like um you know less need for that kind of like small talk stuff or not? where Where do you kind of include small talk and where do you not?
2: I think we see more desire for small talk when the basics have been successful. So like if you are you can rely on that ATM to spit you out the cash when you ask for it and you can like get it done really quickly, then we see people start to like experiment a little bit more with you know different tasks they could accomplish which inevitably sort of like peters into like, Ooh, is this ATM? No jokes. Like <laughs> I'm sitting here waiting for the cash. Maybe I'll just ask or I wonder, like, you know, what else does it, where's it from? Maybe it has that kind of a, a program in there, but it, it's not something that people are typically searching for or trying to investigate more deeply off the top, especially if they can't, you know, get through the very basic tasks that they're trying to accomplish.
0: Mm. You mentioned that there's a good piece around kind of like multimodal and all that kind of stuff. And the ATM uh, example has been used a couple of times here. Is there anything that is very specifically different about designing a voice interface for something like an ATM machine, which has got buttons, it exists in the real world? It's not part of our like current understanding of what voice devices are, voice enabled devices. Like we all know that phones, smart speakers, those are where we expect it to be inevitably we're likely to see it in other places like atms maybe you know ticket machines in trade stations stuff like that is there anything specific that stands out from a design perspective when designing for something that is either out there in the real world or that's that is it has some kind of multimodal kind of like uh nature to it rebecca i don't know if you want to kick off on that one
1: yeah that's a great question i think um with multimodal stuff one of the big things that I always want to impress on people no matter what is that you can't assume everybody's going to use the same senses the same way. So some people might realize they can tap and just stop using voice and tapping the screen. Some people are going to keep using their voice the whole time, even if they're looking at the screen and they see buttons. So accounting for that flexibility um, is, is a a big um, multimodal kind of flag that we like to wave Mm -hmm. Um, in terms of like specific examples in, in the world. um, I don't know if I have a good one off the top of my head, Diana, do you have any, any stuff to throw it? I I worked on a multimodal game um, that relied really heavily on, Visuals. And the thing that really stuck out there is realizing the extent to which we could guide people with their utterances using elements on the screen. So I think the big challenge with multimodal stuff is um, thinking through every available combination of those senses to help people have a successful interaction.
0: Mm.
2: Yeah, the Google Hub actually does, if you just do their onboarding, like that's a really good example of multimodal design because it's doing the exact thing that Rebecca. Talked about like the the voice prompt, so that you you can have a conversation, or you can just like tap through, and it's more of like somebody kind of walking you through it. Mm. Um, and you can just do the tapping. You can interact back and forth. You can sometimes talk, sometimes use tapping. Um, same thing. The uh, I have the Google Assistant on my phone, and similar like with searches and trying to go deeper into okay find a restaurant near me, Well, which one has Chinese food. And like you can continue to search just with your voice or you can start to scroll and tap and either way it's working successfully, but it's allowing the user to access the information sort of in whatever way they want to mm. and following along, following their lead.
0: It's interesting because at what point does conversation design Become, I know that when we talk about conversation design, you would, if you were kind of like going to draw a diagram, you would have like user experience design likely as the umbrella that sits over the top. Conversation design arguably is like a subset of user experience design. You might have like more graphical UI design being like a subset Mm -hmm. as well. You'd probably throw like user research and stuff like that in there, but like conversation design is almost like a, a piece of it. And then as you were talking here around, kind of like the multimodal side of things. And I know that it's just inevitable, isn't it, that phones, smart displays, machines and and computers out in the real world, inevitably there is going to be, yes, some voice-only interfaces, but inevitably there are going to be other interfaces that do require, or not require, but have flexibility around how you use them. You could use your voice, you can tap, you can swipe. At what point does conversation design become UI design? And at what point does UI design become, because at the same time as tapping an option, technically you are still having a conversation because you're, you're communicating a, a desired action or whatever. So I'm curious to get your perspectives on where you think the line is between conversation design and UI design or conversation design and user experience design.
1: I think that's a, mil- a million dollar question. So, you know, essentially what we're really talking about is like a large umbrella of interaction design uh, of which, you know, there's like an Olympic rings Venn diagram of the different roles in the different fields. So um, I would say that um, like speak, well, I'll use myself. I'll use the lens, you know, my own lens as a, as an employee, um, I would potentially position myself as sort of like the the lead on a project that had a really strong conversational element, even if it had a screen. So I am good at thinking about the interplay between inputs and outputs and user behavior and um, when they might use voice and when they might use pointing. So I'm really good at understanding user behavior when they're interacting with screens when voice is a combination. So I could be good at identifying um, some of the requirements for the screen for example um, and i would know how to test a multimodal interaction but the screen design itself you absolutely would never hire me to just design a screen for you so i would definitely like require the collaboration of a of a ui person or a ux person with a lot of design you know visual design background mm. um, and we would work pretty closely together to combine our you know our our different knowledge forces um to come up with something that that i think always is the the sort of what's happening in the field like people have different percentages of the skill sets and so you might show up with you know high on this one medium on this one low on this one and then you work with people whose skill sets complement yours
0: Mm
2: that's something that we actually like harp on a lot in the book is this is such a multidisciplinary field and to get any product to market you you have to have other people weighing in and I think particularly when it's multimodal um, to me the line between what's like a conversation design project and what's a Uh, UI or like a screen design project is really like the driving factor of like how do we expect that people are going to primarily interact with this and what's the supplement to it? Mm. Because then like to Rebecca's point, do you need like a conversation design lead who's like strategically thinking about how this gets wrapped up into a conversation or do you need like a screen design lead and have an expert for either one of those things supporting that person on the team? Because you're going to need both if you're trying to create this multimodal experience. But the the couching of how that is anticipated to play out, how users are actually going to primarily interact with it is usually the driving factor for how that gets structured and how we think of that as a, as a project.
0: Interesting. That reminds me a little bit of um, how... Website design. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on whether whether you see this kind of thing trans transpiring. So with web design, it used to be that you would have a website, you would define the information architecture, the menu you're going to use, where how how you're going to organise information. Uh, you'd then obviously design it and what have you. And then like in the early days, that was kind of your lot. You had a website. HTML, you had a menu, you can click on the menu, and that's how you get around. There's hyperlinks in the pages. You can use those if you want, but that was kind of it. And then Google and Search came around and trained everyone that you can search, actually, if you want, And you can get some pretty decent results rather than having to mess around. And then websites started incorporating search. And then over the years, and I did a lot of work in government digital transformation, and this debate was happening a lot and researched quite a lot, which is, how do you approach website navigation? In the same way, Diana, as you were saying there, it depends on what you think the primary interface is going to be for a use case. For many years, it was thought that the primary way of navigating a website was just clicking through menus. And mm-hmm. some people will search if they want to, which I see as a little bit of like a screen first, like voice for, not voice forward, but like vo, uh, voice, uh, I suppose voice forward, screen first and foremost, voices over the top, It'd being the equivalent of having a website with a search bar. And then what happened is search got actually pretty good and a lot of websites took the approach where they took the search bar from the, from the top of, in the header and they basically just turned the homepage into a search box. So then search did become the primary way of navigating websites. Do you think that we'll see that with voice and conversation and that now maybe with something like a website or an app, possibly it's an add-on and a secondary interface, do you see a world over time where that starts to, like search did with the web, become a more dominant and primary interface? That's, that's a-, a
2: good question. Yeah, <laughs> I think um, so. I just think about like, what is the utility of the, of the website and how are, where are people accessing this? So we've seen that like, even just from a screen design place, we've gone mobile first on things because people are accessing it on their phone. They're looking at things outside in the world. And so to me, that question is more about like, well, where are people, they're just things that you do on a website that you don't tend to do with voice, or you don't want a conversation about. You just kind of want to, you know, find your form or whatever it is. So if the job itself can be morphed to be more conversational, or people are like looking to have, rather than let's use the form example, rather than filling out a form on a web page, I would rather have a conversation with somebody, then yeah, I think like that that shifts. If it's more about like, I want to read paragraphs of information i'm doing a research paper or something that's probably less useful for me to try to transition the way that i'm accessing that i probably still then want to sit down at a desktop and read information as opposed to moving around or having something read to me or interacting with it in some way i i'm throwing these out there because i don't know that's mm. actually the case but
0: yeah what, what i meant though is that that so that so that uh, so i wasn't trying to kind of say do we so the website a website is one thing and more and increased usage of voice and conversational uh, AI on websites is one thing. But just in general, like you could you could apply the same thing to a TV where a TV for decades, the primary interface has mm. been uh, pushing buttons and scrolling. And then there's a voice capability, which is the equivalent, if you think about it, of as having a search box in the top yeah. corner of the website. Whereas over time, it becomes the full main page, which is like the voice interface being the predominant way of accessing TV content. So in, in terms of like websites is one thing, but generally, how we access technology the internet deal with the world around us do you think that the voice component the conversational component will become the dominant i suppose interface is i suppose what are your thoughts rebecca
1: i (laughs) i have so many i feel like we're we're creating the premise for a dissertation here (laughs) um so when i think about this question um I think that people will rely on voice more and more over time if it works well. What's problematic about like the concept of like, essentially, if all your assistant says is what can I help you with? It essentially is a search bar. It's not giving you any indicators of how much content is in there. What can you do? It's not giving you any guidance. Um, So if it truly can answer effectively most of those questions then sure like just being kind of like this general um, seemingly omniscient interaction um, that can work but i think that what's happening and why a lot of these experiences are not working well is that they're pretending to be omniscient and they're not giving any people a sense of like what they can and can't ask about um onboarding is usually not very developed things like that and so a lot of, you have a lot of bots masquerading out there, you know, whether it's mm. voice or chat as omniscient when actually they have a very finite set of things they can do. And um, I think where we are today, we still need to be giving some of that guidance, mm. um, working towards the day, you know, when when we know how to make assistance function really well and give really accurate responses. Um, and then the, the other plug that I'll make is, Everything that I said, like making a bot really very accurate, a lot of people are leaving out kind of this like information architecture piece. In an early websites, that information architecture was literally visible in menu hierarchies. And I think people transitioning to voice, it becomes invisible and they go, well, we don't need that anymore, but actually we need it more than ever. We need to be using like good information architecture practices on um, intents and utterances, on tagging systems that we're using on the content itself.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a crazy sort of um crazy sort of times because there's been a lot of, have you come across the open dialogue or not? Have you come across open dialogue?
1: I know I've of it. it. I haven't
2: used it. I've seen it with the, um. what's that video game? The uh, CPT3? Or oh, GPT3. Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so open dialogue basically, um, So it's, it's like it's a design tool and a lot of the way that it uh, approaches the conversation design has that kind of information architecture led kind of approach, not necessarily from like flows, but more from like describing scenes and, you know, conversations that happen within scenes and turns that happen within It's quite a different way of kind of, uh, modeling it, which is quite interesting. Uh, so if people tuning in, I would definitely recommend checking out the podcast we did with Ronald Lashley from Open Dialogue. It's, uh, it's, it's definitely worth a shout. Um, so you mentioned there that, that, Earlier on, we were talking about uh, people who are designers, conversation designers, picking the book up, getting a lot of value from it. People who are wanting and aspiring conversation designers, getting getting uh, some some value from it. Uh, What do you think? I mean, has it been? I'm assuming it's not just the conversation design community, though. I'm assuming it's it's like who who else has been reading it? Like UX designers, I'm assuming, like things like that. Broadly speaking, who are you finding is getting sort of like value from the content that's that's in there?
2: I think we've had, uh, I know we've had developers and uh, UX designers reach out to us in addition to conversation designers. Um, Rebecca, anybody like big buckets of people?
1: (laughs) Yeah, we've seen um, lots of general UX folks, um, lots of... um, business analysts, I think the book has, is kind of helpful for if you're like a product manager for conversational stuff, but you have worked primarily on other forms of technology. Um, I've got some good feedback from people on how it's useful just showing the conversation designer mindset so that you Mm -hmm. can collaborate with conversational people. And we do kind of break down the basics of the tech as well. Um, So yeah, we sort of um, are pleasantly surprised how many people are picking it up and, and getting mm-hmm. value of it. And it's sort of like one of the points of the book is, um, you know, in this amazing world where the book is really helping people, it would be helping teams collaborate better. And we put these little boxes in several of the chapters called conversation starters. And it's basically like discussion points with your team so like what questions should conversation designers ask developers or what are some things a team can discuss with regards to onboarding? Cause that requires both tech and design working together. So, um, really we think anybody who's working on a conversational product could benefit from, um, knowing a little bit more about it.
0: Mm. What's your approach to the kind of the, cause conversation design as i said it's it's a fairly young practice um standards and 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 good practices still kind of being established through the research and the work that people like yourself are doing and through people working on projects you know live projects and stuff like that um but i was talking to um i think it was braden Ream from voiceflow who said that conversation design is the act of documenting how something is intended to work so that you can communicate that more effectively. Um, I'm curious as to how much, where is the role of conversation design? Is it that documenting communicating? Does it stretch beyond that? When you think of a conversation designer, how would you define the job of a conversation designer, given that it is such a new kind of job role?
1: Yeah yeah diana do you want me to go (laughs) yeah go ahead okay so the um i teach a graduate class on conversation design and the goal is to like give a group of students the skills to be conversation designers so very concretely the conversation designers umbrella is like everything that impacts um like we need to be able to give feedback and, and input on all the things that impact the user's experience. And those things are the personality, how the prompts are written, and that encompasses lots and lots of things, everything from how you were to question, to the tone, Um you need to be able to understand and contribute to intent architecture or the information architecture in general. If you're using a system that doesn't use intents, uh, you need a document. I definitely agree with that piece. We have to like communicate with the team what's supposed to be being built. So that's sort of like those are the skills. And then onto that, we sort of layer user research. We need to be able to use research, um, even if we're not the people producing it, And then, when we're doing all the stuff with the intents and the documentation, we're actually like forming hypotheses that we then need to test through usability testing. Um, Then we also do stuff with um, tuning and kind of improving that. So that, to me, is the whole the whole package. Um, Diana probably has stuff to add.
2: Like the biggest focal points are really like where the conversation designer is like doing the work is really doing things like ideating and scripting and designing like if flows are what you're using designing the flows prototyping like that's really where you lean on the conversation designer but as rebecca mentioned there's like all this other stuff around there where the conversation designer needs to be involved in like that everything after that in the building phase and launching it and everything before that in planning and researching and scoping because otherwise you're sort of siloing somebody throwing them like a piece of paper saying here design this thing that they don't know why they're designing it Mm -hmm. they don't have any chance to impact like with their expertise knowing what works in a conversation what doesn't even basic things like what's a good use case for a conversation you're missing out on getting their expertise if you're cutting them out of that part of the process so while the like core function of a conversation designer might be sort of in the middle part Mm -hmm. having them present at the other parts means that you get more value out of having them on your team.
0: interesting. um a good thing that 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 you kind of touched on is the concept of uh, on the practice of research and i remember i can't remember where i read it now but it was it was something to do with basically saying that a conversation if a conversation designer doesn't have research Then essentially, you're trying to create a conversation with somebody else, but only having one person present. And you can't read a conversation; doesn't exist with one person. So there's a bunch of assumptions that will be made, and all this kind of stuff that uh, it's virtually impossible to do. Um, And so everything that happens does need to be researched, tested, you know, refined, and stuff like that. And we've got a question here around going back to the question of personality, because this is actually something that is fairly difficult to to actually test uh, you know consistent perception of a personality that, that scales is quite a difficult thing and then when you start adding things like um avatars into the situation we've spoke about multimodal design we haven't touched on avatars and so uh Deidre Jones is asking uh a question about avatars and bot personality. 60 Minutes just had a segment about deep fakes, and they featured a company called Synthesia. Synthesia are actually doing some very interesting work in the in the avatar space. It's, it's, definitely check them out if you haven't seen them. Uh, that makes chatbots with avatars. Do you have any thoughts on, about personality design when it comes to avatars? Uh, it's broke off, so I'll read the rest. Uh, your book mentions the potential for bias and uncanny, uncanny valley situations as drawbacks. Will bots with avatars become the norm? And is there anything in particular that you need to consider when you're designing for a bot that has a face and a body and an avatar and things like that? Diana, let's, let's go. Oh, go on. Go on, right?
1: My first response is always what about having an avatar is going to benefit the user? There, there, it might benefit the user. It might be um, it might be the case that there is some, like the, the trust is better or, and that's not true in every case, but there needs to be a reason to have an avatar um, because it can detract from the experience. And this is part of what a conversation designer is weighing. Like, okay, we have all these tools at our disposal. We need to design a personality. Someone in the chat was sort of pointing out like, even data from Star Trek. This is such a great, such a great thing that they brought up. So thank you um, for the person who brought that up. But even data from Star Trek is supposed to like not have a personality, but in fact he he does. So um, we have these tools like personality and using avatars, and we're just deciding like which of these things is going to help the user accomplish their goal or feel the way that we intend them to feel. Um, I do have a lot of concerns about using, especially like hyper-realistic avatars or um, deep fakes. Um, I think that's definitely like a red flag issue. Um, mm. But when we're when we're talking about, you know, you're making a banking chatbot, whether you use an avatar that looks like a person or whether you use an avatar that's more like the business logo, um, even something like that will have an impact on user expectations.
2: Yeah. I think like when we think about like where this is, Happening more and more. It's a lot of like um, ARVR. It's a lot of video games where avatars and uh, voice interactions are happening in a way that sort of like makes sense. It's outside of like this typical, which I think is pretty straightforward, at least to Rebecca and me. I think on what we're looking at avatars, not trying to fool anybody. So if you have like a chat situation, then putting the logo there as opposed to putting a person. But then when you get into these situations where it's more like entertainment based or like, you know, there's a different reason to have an avatar there. Maybe it's like to read the facial expression and get a different um, form of communication or a nuance that you wouldn't get otherwise. We've seen things with like um, conversations and bots with kids with autism and helping them try to like read different expressions and what comes with what. I have not done a ton of research on that, so I don't know if that's actually a good idea or not. But I know that that exists and that's certainly like a place to think about, okay, to Rebecca's point, maybe there is an actual good reason for us to use, there's information we're getting from that avatar that we wouldn't get otherwise that's very helpful or necessary in that specific use case. Mm. But nine times out of 10, if you're just using like a chat bot, you don't need to have facial expressions. There's nothing that you're missing out on. Because those are those, again, kind of goes back to that relational versus transactional. What is the history that your user's going to have with this bot? What is the need that they have to get something done here? And the majority of the time in those situations where you have graphics, you have visuals like an avatar, it's something that's pretty straightforward and transactional and it's not really necessary So Mm. continuing to sort of like back yourselves out of the detail questions and ask those bigger picture questions can help to find that for the team.
0: Interesting. I suppose where it starts getting uh, mandatory is if you have something like, a, a robot, like a, like a what Jibo was, or like uh, Moxie. I don't know if you've seen. Yeah, no, uh, I don't know if you've seen. Moxie. We've got we've got the, the people from Moxie on in the, in in even the this year or in the new year, which looks pretty cool. Um, and obviously, Amazon have, have just kind of launched Astro, and so mm-hmm. we're moving into a space where the devices are no longer little hockey puck discs that sit on your desk, but they're becoming animated characters that. Part of the intention is to potentially build a relationship with people. Part of the intention might be to entertain them and be a bit silly and goofy and pull faces and all that kind of stuff. But at the same time, especially with Astro, given that it's running on Alexa, you can still get things done. You still might rely on it for certain things, like turning your lights on, heating on, blinds, that kind of stuff. And so I suppose that that it's, yeah, we're kind of moving into that space, aren't we, where we're having more kind of like house robots that have facial features, Avatar-ish kind of uh, things. I wonder what your thoughts are on that potential future and how that might change or not the the design approach.
2: I think it, the robot thing is super interesting because there's what you're bringing up, Kane, are like non-humanoid robots, mm. and so it's back to that idea of like anthropomorphizing everything. And in that instance, like there is information that we're getting from a non-humanoid robot that is useful to have some sort of like gesture, or like a tail wag for Astro or something that like a behavior that you don't get um, information if it's just speaking where I think there's this weird line. I was just um, speaking with somebody the other day who creates robots and they had some, some interesting statements around the perception of the robots and like how they should be um how they should be beautiful. And I think like as soon as we start to get into this idea of forming robots to look a certain way, there's all this like bias and potential harm that's being injected into there. And we have to be so thoughtful and so intentional about why we're making choices. Like in that example of beautiful, why does the robot need to be beautiful? Beautiful by whose standards? Like what, what is to be gained? by presenting a robot in a certain way, no matter what that way is. And so like, that's, that's where I think like it's, we're jumping in there too far too fast. Mm-hmm. Whereas like w- testing things out with these non-humanoid r- robots feels like a safer place to see like what information is actually necessary to successfully communicate with somebody before layering on all this societal cultural stuff
1: that we have a ton of problems with right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'll add to all of that. I can't remember who said this the other day. I was talking with someone and they were saying how, I mean, like we want, you know, like Jibo or Astro to be cute and um, they're, they're cute and so they test well, but um, they test well potentially because they're like hijacking our care response. Mm. So we see something that's cute, we wanna care for it. So there is this question of like, is it, is it okay that yeah, it wags its little tail and like the, therefore I like it better as a product or is that in some way sort of like manipulating people? Um, and I, yeah, this always, this is why I love this field is because like you start talking about a concrete question and then all of a sudden you're like in PhD graduate school territory of like, <laughs> well, what is it? And we're seeing such interesting questions, stuff in the chat about like what language is inherently human or is it? And what happens when you extract language from a member of the human species? And, um, you know, it's, it's just like, it's a fun field to dig into this stuff.
0: I I was on I was going I was trying to overlay some of the chat there but apparently it only does it with new things coming through. So if everyone can just say everything that they've been saying throughout the whole conversation then I'll, then uh, then that we could say it all again. Uh, so I I I was on the um i was on the uh, and i do appreciate this conversation by the way in the chat it's just that it's it's uh, it's not always possible for me to track the conversation and also listen to what's being said so apologies if i've missed some bits i need a producer i think is is the upshot of this uh, <laughs> but i was on i was on um the Bolto podcast with mark bernstein talking about reimagining the contact center it's called so check it out if you're in that customer service space and he described this as the single most important question that we might face in our lifetime which seems like a big statement but you referred there Rebecca to a cute little dog that people feel affectionate towards because it hijacks the caregiving emotional state that we have deep rooted in the back of our brains that we can't turn off. It just is there. And therefore how ethical is that to create a product that has the potential to build relationships and sell products or whatever it might be off the back of hijacking part of our kind of like uh, deep rooted hardwired emotional brain. But then you could take that a little bit further and I was, I was talking about, um, I don't want to give too much away because you should go and listen to the podcast, but, <laughs> but essentially I was talking about how there was a video I seen on YouTube from Tony Robbins and he was talking about how one of his really early sales jobs was going around and selling tapes, music tapes. So he used to go around knocking on doors, and he had a suitcase full of tapes with different types of music on, different types of artists. And essentially, he would try and get invited into someone's house. He would start a conversation about music. Do you like music? Yes. What kind of music do you like? Well, I like rock and roll. I like jazz, whatever. And then he would, as they were talking about music, he would kind of show them tapes that corresponded to their type of music. So he's kind of like showing that he understands them, and the product is already in line with what they like. And then he started like drawing up things around, like uh, you know. Just little little things like, um, wouldn't it be no, no, He was drawing problems to highlighting problems with vinyl. It scratches and it's all ruined, you never you'll you'll lose it for life and your music is ruined. And all of a sudden he gets to kind of the end bit and he's kind of selling this like suitcase full of music saying, If you subscribe to our service, you can get as many tapes as you want. If they break, which they don't, but if they do, we'll send you more. And, you know, do you want to buy some? And basically they kind of got to the end of all of this stuff and they said, uh, no. Uh, I don't have a tape player and so he said alright oh, so you're telling me that the only reason you're not buying it is because you don't have a tape player and I'm like yeah he says you promised me that that's the only objection and you think I'm a nice guy you think I'm doing a good job and like, yeah yeah you're a nice guy you're doing a great job and the only reason that you're not uh, buying it is because you don't have a tape player yeah that's right so then he'd pull a tape player out and he'd say well you know that's part of the deal is that when you subscribe, everybody gets a free tape player. Now will you sign? And so I've done a butchered job of explaining it, but basically what he was doing is he was, uh, during the course of the conversation, he was teasing out everybody's objections until he got to the very, very, very last objection, the deal-breaking objection. He had someone promise that if they could overcome that objection, then they would buy the service, and then he overcomes that last objection. And in the end, he said that that's not how I'd recommend doing it today. But it got me thinking that there's a formula isn't there? There's a psychological formula that can lead people down paths, have people change attitudes, behaviors, make decisions. And especially in a voice environment, when it's real time, your emotional brain is thinking. It's not your rational brain. A Lo- load of people make irrational purchases and emotional purchases because in the moment, it's what happens. And so getting around to the question, which Mark Bernstein said is the biggest question of our lifetime, time, is where, where do we kind of, or when do we, kind of step in and put together either if it's regulation, if it's standards, whatever it might be, that potentially prevents something like this from happening with an AI. Because if you imagine, and there's a really good book on the personality bit around authority and power, you imagine a world where an AI for a bank has the power to turn down a loan or an AI at the government has the power to turn down a passport or an AI at a retailer has the power to sell based on, you know, short circuiting our hardwired psychology, at what point does it become unethical? And so maybe that's a nice way of getting into the the topic of ethics and the, because it's not just, oh, should this assistant be a man or a woman and what implications does that have? we're talking far, far bigger and broader region than that. And so I'm wondering whether I can get your thoughts on um, on on that one last time. I know we've got to shoot, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, one last question, if that's cool.
2: This is fascinating because the UN actually just put, I don't know if you all saw this, but they, um, about a week or two ago, um, put out a report that called for a moratorium on AI until basically we can get our shit together. And it's... <laughs> they were noting like all the harm that's been caused and it was like this exact thing of how much manipulation is already happening and how much can we already foresee that's going to happen. And it is, it's terrifying. And it's also, I think like such a huge responsibility for us to, to put that in the ground of like, when you are changing someone's behavior, this is the same thing that's happened with like sort of sticky design with apps and, you know, we already saw stuff with Instagram and other places where this has happened in a a corollary industry. And when you are changing someone's behavior, when you're changing their emotional outset, that is dangerous territory. That is where you should stop because you are impacting them on a level that is not conscious, that is not actively their consent or their choice. And that's not ethical. I don't think that's like uh, controversial to say that. Rebecca?
1: um yeah i think that's such a that that was a great answer diana um i think for me it does it and i have a lot of learning and deepening to do in my own thinking on this but like when kane when you were describing that situation where the guy with the tapes who is someone i would never want to talk to at a party (laughs) ever i can smell a guy like that a mile away he's essentially that he's like positioning it as like, well, I did this thing to this person. I view that whole situation as like an abusive power hmm. and <laughs> um, also terrifying. Um, but like, <laughs> You know, I, I do think that a lot of this does tie back to power and we mention it, you know, in, in a few places in our book, but I think that that's an area that a lot of um, AI and AI and data activists are doing a lot of work on exploring those relationships. So um to me, that's where I want to start looking when these kinds of questions come up.
0: Hmm. Justin well this has been an absolute pleasure I know there's some questions there that we haven't managed to get to and apologies uh, everyone perhaps if we have time uh, we can go back through the comments and we can pick up some answers Uh, potentially uh, congratulations to Joe Yelland for winning a free copy of Conversations with Things and thank you Rebecca and Diana for joining us this has been an absolutely immense conversation I feel like it could have went for a week Uh, and let's not leave it another pandemic next time before uh, before we do this again
1: absolutely Thanks. thank Thanks so you much,
0: Kane. Kane. it goes without saying that obviously i'll put, put the links to the book in the show notes and on the website etc cetera, etc cetera. uh and uh yeah uh, if you don't have it i would recommend you pick up a copy uh because it is absolutely amazing uh thank you all for joining in thank you all for tuning in uh thank you for joining me uh rebecca and diana and until next week thursday wednesday think it's probably wednesday i always do this i always forget who's coming up oh <laughs> well, actually next week uh on thursday we've got serence and uh harman joining us to talk about their partnership that is bringing voice enabled apps to cars all over the world that's going to be fantastic so do join do join us then uh thank you both for joining us uh thank you all for tuning in and we'll see you next week
2: thanks